our uh, first chapter of Ruth 1. It's a rather long passage, but I think there's enough details in here to hold our attention. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death, separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they, <clears throat> when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are here from many different places in our spiritual journey. Some of us 
are surprised to find ourselves in church this morning. Some of us are hopeless and have wandered in with the just vain last breath of hope that we might find something light here, that we might find grace here. Others of us have given up on the church and the stories of the church long ago because some great trial or tragedy has entered our lives just like they entered the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. Father, others of us just have grown tired of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the story again. We need to be told the story again. We need an impression of the gospel, not just simply more information. Would you let this story come alive to us? Would you let the gospel of your redemption, of your son Jesus, be heralded even in the midst of this Old Testament narrative? Father, let us see Jesus. Let us see where we can find hope in a sometimes hopeless world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, read an article in the New Jersey Star-Ledger this week about the changing uh, landscape of cinema, and I thought it was very perceptive because it brought in a lot of how the movies and the films are both reflecting as well as changing and, and uh, encouraging change in our, in our larger culture. He says, we sit in the dark waiting, and movies tell us the stories we want to hear. They may experiment with form, telling tales out of sequence or even backwards, They may propose all sorts of revolutionary beliefs, yet for all their avant-garde real radicalism, there is one thing that movies do not dare. They do not question that our choices matter, or that we matter. At least they didn't used to. Yet lately, movies have moved into a darker, emptier territory. After decades of idealism and its bruised brother cynicism, increasingly, American films are embracing an existential bleakness. Everyone exists in the same ignorant, purposeless world where life is ruled by chance and bitterness is beside the point. Bad things happen to good people for not much reason at all, and then good people die. They're about a feeling that playing by the rules means nothing, that in fact there are no rules. Go ahead, put in your 40 hours of uh, of work a week, and then put in 10 more. Go on, buy that house that the lender says you can afford, and ask him again if he's sure, and then sign the papers. Then watch as you get downsized, as you get foreclosed on, and realize that the worst may be yet to come, and that none of it is fair or reasonable. One of the directors that's working in this genre that is looking at darkness and bleakness and asking questions of what's behind this darkness, what's behind this purposeless existence that we inhabit uh, that is not yet gone fully to the side of nihilism, uh, but still is asking in the context of presuming that there is a God behind this is Clint Eastwood. And many of his films in the last few years have been asking the questions with the presumption that something exists beyond our world. Whether it's a personal God or some impersonal force, he's asking and looking at the world and saying, how can this matter? How can our lives matter? Is there any purpose at all? He doesn't seem to yet be willing to jettison fully the idea that there might be a God somewhere, but many of his films are actually kind of mad at that that God. His epic crime drama, Mystic River, as in in the opening scenes, the camera 
comes into Boston, the city where this great violence is happening, and the camera has the perspective of God over this city, overseeing this violence and lostness and hopelessness that is going on in the streets. And then you see this uh, girl, the daughter of one of the main characters, who's senselessly killed in an act of just terrible violence, and the camera is over her lying dead, and then it pans up in between the trees to God as if to say, God, where are you? How can you let something like this happen? If there's no God, then bad things just happen. It's just the way things are. In a universe ruled by God, however, when famine comes, when your husband dies, when your sons die, when you're left marginalized on the edges of society, you ask why, or you become very angry with God. You become bitter with God. For Naomi, it's not a thought to just jettison the faith, to disbelieve her belief, to disbelieve in, in God altogether. She, in fact, maintains orthodox theology about God. She's cursed by him. Her world is falling apart, not because of the absence of God, but because of him. If we exist in, the, in this ignorant, purposeless world that this writer is talking about, ruled by chance, then bitterness is beside the point. Who do we get bitter at? Who do we get mad at? But for Naomi, bitterness has a very fine point. It's directed at God himself. And we're going to look at this narrative, this lament of bitterness. And then we're going to look at how God breaks into that bitterness in the middle of that seeming purposelessness of Naomi's existence with grace. First of all, bitterness. Now, here's the narrative. She goes to Moab with her husband Elimelech, which is not the place to go if you are an Israelite. There's this tension, this terrible relationship between the Israelites and the Moabites that has existed for years. No one would go there for refuge. So the fact that they're going there as a refugee, as an outsider, as a sojourner is hard to understand to begin with. So, but why do they go? It's because there's a famine in their land. The chosen people, the promised land, there's nothing to eat, and so they leave. And then she takes along, or they have sons once they get there, grandsons um, that are named uh, I'm sorry, she has sons named uh, Malan and Killian, which means sick and frail. So it's not really a, a chipper outlook on life for Naomi. Then Elimelech dies, her husband. And she's in a foreign land without her husband, who is her protector. Even, if, even in your own land, in your own people, for a woman to die, you're left powerless in that culture. You have no legal rights. But she's in a foreign land. But she still has these two sons who have married Moabite women, and they die. (laughs) Three strikes, terrible, terrible events in her life. And she feels utterly abandoned and utterly crushed. She doesn't lose her faith, but she is crushed spiritually. Don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has turned his face against me. The Lord that I have followed, that I have worshipped, has made my life a wreck. Now notice her response is not, 
well, this demonstrates that there is no God, because how could these things happen in a world that was ruled by a good God? She doesn't assign the blame to the hands of fate, but she has, she's a good Calvinist here. She says, God did it. Like Robinson Crusoe, who was abandoned and, and stranded on the island, he says, if so, if nothing can happen in the great circuit of his works, either without his knowledge or appointment. And if nothing happens without his knowledge, he knows that I am here. And I am in this dreadful condition. And if nothing happens without his appointment, he has appointed all this to befall me. You see, Robinson Crusoe and Naomi have very orthodox theology in the response to these great tragedies, but it's not comforting to them. Naomi lays the blame firmly at God's feet. You have done this to me, God. And as such, we see, we compare the tragedies that are happening in Naomi's life, and you see great parallels with Job. The things that befell him, he assigned to the sovereignty, the providence of God. And it says in chapter 2 of Job, when they saw him, that is his friends, from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They could hardly recognize Job because of what was befalling him. What does it say her what does her hometown say about Naomi? Can this be her? They don't recognize her. Just as Job's friends didn't recognize him because of the great tragedies that had befallen him, it had changed his appearance. It had changed his countenance. Naomi had been gone for at least a decade, but probably no more than than two. And yet She was unrecognizable to her friends in the town. These years had not been good to her. The Library of Congress released, I don't know if you saw, some color pictures of uh, during the Great Depression from the 1920s and 30s. They released them this week. And I'm always amazed to see pictures from the Great Depression because you look at the pictures of families and the parents seem so much older than they should be based upon the age of of the children. It's because this hard scrabble life that they've had to live for a decade or more, where they've wor- had to worry about food, they've traveled from town to town, they, they look haggard and tired beyond just what a normal good night's sleep would cure. They've, they've aged years and years. Now she says, I left here full, but she left in famine. She leaves Judah in famine, but she says, I left full. She was full and happy and content because in a world that valued women based upon their husband and based upon their ability to birth children, to give birth to children, she had everything. You see, her bitterness goes so much deeper than just the loss of her loved ones. Though we can and and we should sympathize with her confusion and her heartache over that alone, there's so much more. Because where Job still has his standing, Job still has his ability to work, Job still has his legal rights, Job still has his standing in the community, his place in a patriarchal world, his dignity. He's not worried about being discriminated against and being abused physically, socially, sexually. But Naomi hasn't just lost her family. She's lost everything. She's empty. She's vulnerable to exploitation in a very patriarchal society. She's given up her dignity, her identity, her legal rights. She's a leftover. 
She's empty. Now, what do we have to say to Naomi? What possibly, what could we possibly say that would be helpful to her? Or if you or I are in that situation now or will be in the future, what possible comfort can there be? The one thing that Naomi is lacking is not a lesson in theology. She's orthodox. She gets the pieces. She believes in the confession that God has not left his throne, that God is still alive and active in the world. She believes all of that, but somehow it's not comforting to her. What Naomi has to, has to learn is to live by a different story. Steve and Matt and I were in St. Louis a few months ago and got to have drinks with one of my heroes, Nicholas Wolterstorff. And he is a philosophy professor, or was philosophy professor at Yale for many years, and now is at Virginia. Uh, and he's written dozens of books. All of them are wonderful. But one of them is about the loss of his son, Eric. And in that book, someone says to his wife, Claire, I hope you're learning to live at peace with Eric's death. He says, peace, shalom. Shalom is the fullness of life in all its dimensions. Shalom is the dwelling in justice and delight with God, with neighbor and with oneself and in nature. Death is shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. What we have to see as we look at this book, as we look at this narrative, is that it's part of a larger story. It's a part of the story of the, that the Bible is telling about how God himself does not live at peace with death, that it's a curse on the people that he loves and that he is at work destroying it. John Steinbeck in East of Eden has this great quote. He says, There is no lostness like that which comes to a man when a perfect and certain pattern has dissolved about him. Do you get that? No lostness like that which comes to a man when a perfect and certain pattern of lostness has dissolved about him. In other words, when things are going terrible and there's no hope, that the li- your life is just going to repeat until you die. There's this pattern that's dissolved about you. But that pattern, if you believe the story of Ruth, if you believe the Bible, has not dissolved around the life of Naomi. There is a break in the pattern, a disturbance of redemption. Her suffering and pain, though real and lamentable and something that we ought to weep and cry about, is not the end of her story. And the story of the world is not over yet. Naomi is the one who, in God's providence, brings Ruth, the Moabitess, from a foreign land, an enemy land, into Israel to become part of the divine line, the royal line, that she's the great-grandmother of David, of King David, and is also an ancestor of Jesus, the one who will come to bring in full that redemption. And this story is so critical to see that Jesus' royal line is not made up of kings and people that have their lives all together and nothing ever goes wrong. But a Moabitist, an, an enemy, is part of the royal line of Jesus, the royal line of David. God doesn't exile the weak and the widow and the marginalized, but says, you are still beautiful, you are still usable to me, and I give you Naomi, I give you Ruth, a central part of my story. 
in the middle of this lament, we see light break in. We see grace break in into the middle of this terrible story. Something remarkable happens to Ruth that will unfold for the rest of this story. Ruth, who is raised to worship the Moabite god Chemosh, decides to convert. She's seen the Israelite god Yahweh do nothing but torment her mother-in-law, Naomi, and yet she says, I will cling to this god. Naomi reasons with their daughters-in-law and says, you see what's happened to me. Return to your land. Return to your God. Something no Israelite would ever say. Return to worship Chemosh. It's unthinkable. But she says, be sensible. Be rational. Be logical. There's nothing in Israel for you. Go home. At least maybe you can find a husband and live comfortably with him. Now, Orpah takes her up on the offer, but Ruth says, Ruth, it says, clings to her. says, where you will go, Naomi, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And if that wasn't enough, changing religions, changing cultures, changing her family and her heritage, she says, when you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. You see, she's not just being sensible and saying, I love this woman, I'm going to go with her until she dies, and then I'll return to my people. No, she is forsaking her whole heritage, her culture, and her religion to say, I want to cling to Yahweh. I want to cling to the God that you serve. Even though I see in your life it hasn't created bliss, it hasn't created happiness, it hasn't created the type of fullness that you would expect, I want to cling to your God, to Yahweh. Now, the obvious question is, why? Why would she do this? She... Orpah is the sensible and the rational one. She itemizes the pros and cons. And for her, Moab wins by a mile. There's no way I'm going to Israel with you. You're elderly. You're going to die soon, and I'm going to be stuck there. At least in Moab, I can find a husband. So she goes back. But Ruth chooses Israel and chooses Yahweh by his personal name. Now, maybe she just loved Naomi. Maybe they were just best friends and she couldn't stand to be apart apart from Naomi and they were going to have this Thelma and Louise moment where they grab hands and drive off a cliff together. If Naomi is going to have a terrible life, then me too. I'm going to die with her. But the text says that Naomi stopped urging her and the two went on until Bethlehem. Seventy miles, perhaps a few days' journey. That's a long walk for best friends, hand in hand, to not speak a word to each other. Naomi's upset with Ruth. Ruth is not following her because only she loves her and it's her best friend, although that's probably true. She's converting. She's following her for something very different, something irrational, something absurd is happening in the life of Ruth and in this story. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is, uh, was a, a preacher and minister and commentator in Britain in the last century, has this to say about Christian conversion. He says, has Christianity 
ever come to you as a phenomenon. If it is not, you know nothing about it. You have a theoretical interest in Christianity, and many people have. God forgive me, so did I for many years. I had a mere intellectual interest in it, and that can be very fascinating, but it's not the real thing. One becomes a true Christian when one is confronted by something that is a phenomenon, something arresting, something shaking, something inexplicable. Ruth has switched allegiances in the midst of this terrible story, this terrible journey that she's taking with Naomi and with Naomi's family. And she herself has lost a husband and hasn't had any children. Her meaning, her markers of identity are all gone. It's absurd for her to cling to Yahweh. It's absurd for her to go to Israel. It's not the rational or sensible thing to do, but God has gotten a hold of her. Grace has broken into her life. She sees something real in Yahweh, and she says, I will cling to Yahweh in spite of the fact that my life may not be happy and be great because of it. I will cling to him because he is worthy. If you're a Christian living in this world, there will be many times where your faith seems irrational, where your faith seems absurd. How can I continue to believe this? Look at what God has done in my life. Many of us have the opposite experience and have great blessing and great prosperity and so forth, but there will be a time for all of us when great tragedy, when great trial, when great hurt is going to break in. And it will seem like it is absurd to keep following God in those moments. What's the alternative? Are all other systems rational and do they make sense? One of the things that I was happy about that article was the trend that we're seeing in cinema with, with movies like No Country for Old Men where life is meted out, life is snuffed out by the flip of a coin. That that's how irrational life seems. That's how purposeless life seems to Cormac McCarthy and to the Coen brothers. Even The Dark Knight, the blockbuster from a few years ago, you have a villain that makes no sense. He doesn't have a plan. He says, I'm like a dog. If I ever caught a car, I wouldn't know what to do with it. He just kills people because he's a villain. Because why not? It makes no sense. Or actually, it makes perfect sense in a nihilistic world, in a world that's governed by death. Death comes at the flip of a quarter. But at least it's consistent. At least nihilism is consistent. If nothing makes sense, then I just live for myself. And I step on whoever I want to step on. There's no room for bitterness like Naomi, because who are you bitter at? (laughs) Who do you get angry at in a nihilistic world? But C.S. Lewis would argue that it has its moments of irrationalism as well, where the light breaks in, where grace breaks in, even into a nihilistic worldview, even into a purposeless existence. He says, and I'm sorry I'm giving you so many of these long quotes, but this is important. He says, let us suppose that nature is all that exists. You can't, except in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are momentary and accidental and an accidental pattern produced by the collision 
of atoms, and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its, its air of significance is a pure illusion, that, that you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still, in the lowest sense, have a good time, but just insofar as it becomes very good, just insofar as it ever threatens to push you on from the cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far you will be forced to, to feel the hopeless disharmony between the universe in which you really live and the universe in which you think you live. There is a hopelessness that is in these films that also is sometimes irrational, that the light breaks in, that there are moments of love, there are moments of beauty that are inexplicable in those systems as well. So in the converse, in the Christian system, when there's moments of pain and suffering that break in that seem to be inexplicable, does that throw off the whole system? There is a sometimes irrational hopefulness about Christianity. I alluded to the rapture silliness that was happening in the news this week, and I couldn't believe how many headlines and how much attention that this got uh, in the news media. And I have to admit that I had this kind of condescending air towards uh, Camping and some of his leaders. How could you be uh, committed to this? How could you believe this? And how could you dupe so many followers? But then it occurred to me, wait a minute, I believe in the second coming of Jesus. I believe that at some moment he's going to break in and finally end the madness and the purposelessness of our existence here on earth. And I thought, how am I different? Is that system so much more irrational than mine or than the traditional Christian view? I hope so. (laughs) But our hopes are shattered. We don't get what we want out of life. Our marriages end. Our children die. Will the disturbance of redemption that will bring meaning to all of this, will it really come? Will Jesus finally step out of heaven once again and remake all things to where pain and suffering and lives like Naomi's never happen again? The ancient Hebrew has no vowels, but only consonants. And so you you have words that by themselves seem completely unpronounceable. But native Hebrew speakers have learned to read them as if there's vowels present. When you you study it now in seminary, you get all these dots, and it's, it's still difficult, but at least you know where the vowels are. A Hebrew reader of ancient Hebrew has no vowels, but they read it just like you and I, read English. They know exactly which vowels to supply where. where. And so BRK becomes Barak, and GDL becomes Gadol. Irrational, sometimes irrational hopefulness is a little bit like that, that there are a lot of hard truths and a lot of hard sounds that get jammed together in the tragedies of life and even into the normal, ordinary, daily circumstances of our lives. And it doesn't always make perfect sense or seem very pronounceable by our categories of faith. But it's, 
It is faith that provides the vowels at just the right times in those hard moments, in those unpronounceable times. Life isn't always very phonetic in some literal sense, but then grace breaks in and the vowels get interjected in surprising ways. And this is what the story of Ruth does, is it gives us something to hold on to. It gives us the vowels that make sense of the hard consonants and the hard tragedies of life. And if we'll go through this series, if we'll go through this study, that you and I will be better equipped to deal with those things, that they're still painful, that they're still confusing. There's still times where we lift our hands and say, God, are you really there? But that sort of question, that sort of doubt, that sort of hopeful doubt is not condemned in the book of Ruth. It's recommended. Ruth clings to God even in spite of evidence to the contrary that this would be beneficial to her. She clings to Yahweh, not because of what it does for her, but because he is worthy and that his story of redemption, his disturbance of redemption can break into anyone's life just as it does in Ruth's here. It can break into your chaos as well, that your story, no matter how wicked, how broken, how terrible, is not over yet. And the story of the world is not over yet. Ruth doesn't convert because it's the sensible, rational, mathematical, logical thing to do, but because grace had broken into her life. Ruth had nothing to merit this grace. She's a Moabitess. She's not even an Israelite. She's not from the chosen people. She's a widow. She has no cultural standing. She has nothing that she can bring. She stands naked before God, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. She has nothing to define herself except Yahweh, except for God, except for His grace. Clinging to Him is all that she could do. And God said, welcome, come in. You're beautiful to me. I love you. Would you receive my grace forevermore? That's the story that Ruth is telling, and that's the story we'll hear for the next three weeks. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would ground us in grace, that as we see this story that predates Jesus, that we would nonetheless see the gospel, that we would see the hope of redemption that Jesus finally secures and will finally return to to fully consummate. Let that be our hope in the midst of trying circumstances, in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart. Let us even irrationally and illogically cling to you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.